And the reason is that, you know, it's about legitimacy. The, the Western powers and the rest of the world is the governments that need to fight terrorism have to win the, the war uh, of hearts and minds. And that means maintaining the high moral ground, making sure that your, your actions promote uh, human rights, democracy, and above all, the rule of law in the sense of saying, this is how we are different. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And hello, this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites, and uh, I also practice law. Well, yeah, I guess I do that too, Bob. (laughs) I thought you were retired, Craig. (laughs) Oh, no, far from it. Well, before we introduce today's topic, Bob, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at www.goclio.com. Well, on November 13th, 2015, a series of coordinated terrorist attacks occurred in Paris, killing and maiming hundreds of people. Ultimately, the terror organization ISIS took responsibility for the attacks uh, in retaliation for French airstrikes on ISIS in Syria and Iraq's soil. These attacks rattled the world and put a spotlight on terrorism once again. So the complete and utter disregard for the rules of war by terror organization, what needs to change? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at how the law plays into terrorism, the the recent Paris attacks, terrorism today more broadly in the world versus terrorism yesterday, the Geneva Conventions and international law's role, what needs to be done legally to stay current in our fight against terrorism. And Bob, our guest today is joining us from Arusha, Tanzania. Dr. Lyle Sunga has conducted monitoring, investigation, reporting, technical cooperation, education, and training in some 55 countries over the last 25 years in human rights, humanitarian law, and international criminal law. He is the head of the Rule of Law program at the Hague Institute for Global Justice in the Netherlands and visiting professor at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute for Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Dr. Sunga. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, can you give us a perspective on the international laws that apply to the situation in Paris, the Geneva Conventions, uh, and the piece that you wrote about how international law can meet the challenges of today's lawless conflicts? Just give us a perspective on what's the framework that we're looking at here. Well, you know, first of all, um, the most obvious framework is, uh, is, is the domestic criminal law. Uh, obviously, the um, the attacks in Paris um, constitute a you know a major crime there. Um, but the, the wider questions that that are that are going to be have to have to be taken into account are how does the international community strengthen its response? Because uh, what we're seeing with you know ISIS or ISIL or uh, Islamic State or Daesh, whatever you want to call it, is a different kind of phenomenon than we're used to uh, seeing from terrorist organizations. You know, in the past we've seen you know in the 1970s and 80s, we've seen terrorist groups uh, pop up here and there, even for some considerable period of time, try to threaten the the political independence of the state. 
by waging a terror campaign, uh, trying to intimidate uh, people and the government into changing a particular policy or, or forcing their agenda you know, on, the, on decision makers. The situation we're seeing now is, is a game changer in the sense that here you have an organization that is managing to actually hold territory and is not just targeting one particular state you know, uh, one government within a country, but it is uh, trying to set up, purports to set up a state with territory. That's something we haven't really seen with terrorist groups, which in the past could re- basically be addressed as if they were criminal, you know, uh, crime syndicates, so organized crime in a way. And to the point I was making in um, an article I wrote in the Guardian recently, just the day after the Paris attack, is that, like it or not, the response has to be a much more international one uh, than, than, than we're used to. Now, that's not something that's not only me that's saying that. I think people obviously recognize that. And that's why um, we're seeing major powers uh, trying to figure out the best and most effective way to to take the fight uh, to uh, so-called Islamic State in uh, what it claims to be its own territory and rather than to see the situation where you have these people going off, doing their training off in Syria and Iraq, and then uh, uh, returning to uh, to Europe or to other countries and launching a fairly sophisticated terrorist attack. So that's why um, we have to talk much more about international cooperation to fight terrorism and all the, the, the regulations and law that, that could be used uh, to make that fight effective, uh, more so than, than in the past. Lyle, this is Bob. That, that article you mentioned it was titled, Can International Law Meet the Challenges of Today's Lawless Conflicts? And you, you talk about the Geneva Conventions. You, you make the point that the Geneva Conventions were adopted in 1949, mainly to limit cruelty in wars fought sort of by regular soldiers. And you, you raise the question of how those Geneva Conventions can apply to terrorism today, where it, it's a whole different ballgame, as, as you've already kind of suggested. But I, I wonder if you could just, I, of course, our listeners have all heard of the Geneva Conventions, but re- remind us what, what they are about and what they do. Uh, sure. You know, the, the first uh, Geneva Convention was adopted in, uh, in 1864 in Geneva. It's basically all the um, rules relating to uh, limiting cruelty and uh, trying to regulate the means and methods of warfare. And, and it's really been sponsored by the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. And the whole idea of the Geneva Conventions is is not to take necessarily a stand on who's right or or who's wrong, you know, the the fighting parties, but simply to reduce unnecessary suffering, and in doing that, trying to, for example, make sure that hospitals are are not subject to attack, uh, to make sure that civilians are uh, not subject to attack, to make sure that when a combatant is uh, captured, that uh, he or she is treated as a prisoner of war taken care of accordingly so that at the end of the conflict there could be exchange, an exchange of prisoners so to make sure that, that, that uh, sick, wounded, and shipwrecked are taken care of. So the idea is to try to introduce, to the extent possible, uh, humanity in wartime and to say that uh, the right to inflict uh, damage on the enemy is, is, uh, is not unlimited and also to protect cultural property. So there's a whole bunch of rules out there. For example, it makes no sense to for uh, you know uh, soldiers to use uh, bombs that are made of glass because you take out the soldier out of action, but you know glass fragments cannot be detected. So that there's no way you can get the glass out 
glass fragments out of a person's body even after the war's ended. So even after the dispute is, is done and countries are uh, uh, making peace and everybody shake hands, you know, these, these uh, soldiers and, and potentially civilians are, are left maimed for life. The idea was to humanize war to the, to the extent possible. Now, in the case of, you know, the, the Geneva Conventions, uh, the, the main ones that, that are operating in the field right now, were adopted on uh, 12 August 1949. And uh, the presumption there, which was a fair presumption at the time, was that war mainly at the time was an interstate uh, conflict, armed conflict, and you were having uh, a situation of uh, a country's soldiers under a, under a responsible command fighting another army. And you could have implementation of the Geneva Conventions and uh, have command responsibility, etc. Now, in the case of, uh, the, of the Islamic State, they have command responsibility and they have uh, military discipline and everything else. But it's not the kind that, that, that uh, anybody is used to, to seeing because, first of all, they don't seem to put a high premium on the sanctity of, of life. And they're deliberately targeting civilians and deliberately violating, you know, the, the norms that have been developed over, you know, hundreds of years in the humanitarian law field and in the laws of war that, you, you know, one cannot go below. So uh, they're operating on a different basis. I wouldn't make the mistake to say that these uh, terrorists are completely incoherent madmen and psychotic people. They may have all those elements, but they're much more than that. They, they are following a coherent ideology that is just very much at odds with the minimum civilized norms that, that we've come to, to expect. And, uh, you know, with suicide bombings and everything else, it's completely outside the, the realm of, uh, of the Geneva Conventions, and it makes it very difficult to, uh, to say to these people, listen, um, we will respect your side if you respect ours. There's no, there's no dialogue there in terms of humanity and war, in warfare. So that's, that's a very big challenge. What level of cooperation is going to be needed among nations in order to be able to bring forth the, the things that you're talking about? Well, I think a high level of cooperation. Right now we're seeing uh, quite a lot of political will to uh, you know, share information and uh, intelligence and, and military operations. But you can sense uh, when you read the news carefully and uh, you talk to people that uh, the cooperation could be much stronger uh, yet. And one of the things I said in the article in, that was in The Guardian was that one of the gaps in international uh, law, uh, in transnational criminal law and international criminal law, is there hasn't actually even been a internationally agreed uh, comprehensive definition of the crime of terrorism. Part of the reason for that is that, and there's not a UN convention on terrorism, there's about 19 or 20 conventions addressing particular aspects of terrorism, but we don't have a, a comprehensive terrorism convention, partly because many states feel that, well, you know, there are some groups we don't want to, to call terrorist groups. Maybe they're fighting for national liberation. Maybe we, we agree with some of their aims. And uh, we don't want to be implicated uh, committing a crime under international law or be labeled as a terrorist, because some of those, the use of violence may be legitimate in our, in our view. It's not difficult to, to define terrorism. We, we know when we see it. We know, we know terrorist acts when we see it. But uh, political will to actually uh, nail that down has been lacking, and uh, much more could be done on that score. For example, the, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court does not have a 
uh, you know, terrorism is is covered here and there by by some of the other uh, some of the crimes of war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. You could say, well, some of these are in essence uh, cover co- cover crimes of terrorism, but there's no um, you know crime of terrorism per, per se uh, set out in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and that's another gap. Now, the United States is not even a party to that, uh, sadly enough. But many countries are, and uh, that's just another gap I could I could flag that could uh, use attention. There was uh, a, a lot of news coverage uh, here in the United States yesterday uh, of the fact that a group called uh, Human Rights Watch uh, has called uh, for the United States government to conduct a criminal probe of uh, CIA torture uh, of terrorism suspects uh, in the past. If when we're talking about the Geneva Conventions, how much does the conduct by what we might call the white hats <laughs> or the good guys here play into this? I mean, it, some of the way that uh, you know the United States and other governments uh, have been conducting anti-terrorism operations uh, in recent years have have themselves raised questions. Uh, so how does that play into this whole equation of enforcing the Geneva Conventions with regard to terrorism? Well, it is a very um, important question, and I think m- many of us uh, internationally were very much appalled by what we considered to be very foolish actions on the part of the uh, you know, George W. Bush uh, government by uh, getting provoked into excesses uh, so-called in, enhanced ter- interrogation and, and trying to get uh, legal opinions that, that legi- legitimize uh, tor- what amounts to torture and trying to say, well, you know, we, we, we need to do these things. This, is, this plays right into the hands of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's often been said it's the best recruiting tool for, for terrorists because they say, look, you know, the gloves are off and, uh, you know, we welcome the fight. Uh, that's what they're saying right now in Syria. They can't wait to see Americans' uh, boots on the ground. And the same thing, you know, in, with terrorists in, in, in Iraq uh, and elsewhere. It's difficult because it means you say, well, you know, why, why should we abide by the laws of war and uh, the Geneva Conventions if the other side has no intention of doing that? But the thing is that it's not that the terrorists deserve such... Uh, that's nice treatment. And in fact, we're not talking about nice treatment. We're talking about the minimum standards of that, you know, you don't torture them, you don't summarily execute them, etc. And the reason is that, you know, it's about legitimacy. The, the Western powers and the rest of the world, the, the governments that need to fight terrorism, have to win the, the war uh, of hearts and minds. And that means maintaining the high moral ground, making sure that your, your actions promote uh, human rights, democracy, and above all, the rule of law in the sense of saying, this is how we are different. There are thousands of recruits going. Uh, they get sucked into the, the lure of, uh, uh, of, of ISIS. But once ISIS, ISIS gets beaten, they don't have to be beaten by, by dirty fighting. They, they have to be eliminated on the ground, uh, fair and square. And that's, that's going to dent their legitimacy. And people are going to start realizing that, you know, it's a losing battle on their side. So legitimacy is, is really essential because getting goaded into overreaction uh, just feeds exactly what uh, the Islamic State wants. So it's not just about idealistic notions of, uh, of human rights or uh, being nice to people or pe- people are going to be grateful or something like that. No, we're dealing with very hard-headed people that could treat them nice or you could treat them, uh, you know, nasty. They're going to do the same thing. So 
that's not the, the, the issue. It's that we ourselves have to maintain uh, our legitimate approaches to these issues and not get goaded into excess. I don't know whether that, I made myself clear on that, uh, on that point. No, very, very clear. Uh, Lyle, we're about midway through the program. We're going to just take a couple of moments break here, and we're going to be right back to continue this discussion. So please stay with us. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams with Bob Ambrosi. And today with us is Dr. Lyle Sunga, head of the Rule of Law Program at the Hague Institute for Global Justice in the Netherlands and visiting professor at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute for Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. In our last segment, we've been talking about the tragedy of the Paris attacks, terrorism, the role of international law. Dr. Sunga, what realistically can the world expect in terms of taking this fight to ISIS? Is this a fight that can be won, or is this a fight that, from your perspective and the, and the, the number of things that you've seen in your life, do we have any chance? Well, I think we definitely have a chance. I'm optimistic that the fight will be won. Because, there, you know, what's at stake is uh, our safety and security at home and, uh, and abroad. And uh, it's a fight that, that must be won. But, you know, it's, it, it's going to take time. And uh, it's going to take a lot of um, commitment and resolve. But I have no doubt that the recent events, uh, you know, the, the terrorism is, is, is on our doorstep. And, uh, you know, 9-11 tragedy is still fresh in people's uh, minds. It, it shocked uh, the world over. And so of all the recent tragedies in many parts of the world. I, I wouldn't underestimate the ingenuity of criminal law enforcement. But it could be tightened up a lot. I mean, um, coordination could be much stronger. Intelligence uh, sharing could be much stronger. And there have to be the safeguards to, to make sure that people feel safe and not also threatened by, by government, that, that government doesn't give the impression that it's uh, overly intrusive or that it intimidates. And I'm not just talking about in the United States or in you know, the, the Western democracies, but all around the world. Um, heavy-handedness uh, does nothing for, for the fight against uh, terrorism or, or indeed any other kind of uh, fight. So it has to be done uh, carefully, and I think governments are, are responsible and dedicated enough to, to carry on that fight. But the, the key will have to be a strong international and regional cooperation, and uh, there are many avenues through which uh, that has to be done, and I, I would like to see much more of that. Lyle, you're urging that, that states update the Geneva Conventions. What specifically 
do you think uh, should be in there that's not? How should they be changed to address the kind of the modern realities of, of war as, as we live it now? Well, you know, I want to uh, stress that in terms of the Geneva Conventions, uh, they should be updated, and specifically the fourth Geneva Convention, which is Article 33, sub 4, for people interested in human, international humanitarian law, for example, prohibits collective penalties and all measures of intimidation or of terrorism. But like I say, the, um, the Geneva Conventions were, were drafted in a time when what we were envisaging was, was uh, soldiers on the field or potentially freedom fighters who, who w- would be wearing their uniforms on the field and then they would retire at night, this kind of thing that melted into the civilian population. Well, it's rather complex, uh, the Geneva Conventions, because it still distinguishes between non-international uh, armed conflict and international armed conflict, and in many ways, it's, they're very complex. So, uh, you know, the Geneva Conventions should be, should be uh, simplified, should take into account the, the new kinds of conflict uh, that we're seeing, the kind that is being run by uh, terrorists uh, running around in, in Syria and Iraq. So I wouldn't be more specific than that at this, at this moment, but it, it definitely needs to be revisited. Well, if I could just follow up, maybe this is a naive question, but it strikes me that the Geneva Conventions uh, presume that sort of both sides to the conflict are going to have maybe some regard for you know, the rules of war in some way or, or, or uh, some abide in some way to kind of basic principles of law. And, and it seems the issue with, with so many of these terrorist groups is, is a complete a complete disregard. I think you make this point in your article, a complete disregard for uh, kind of traditional rules of, of how we go about these things. And, uh, you know, how, do, how can the uh, Geneva Conventions or any kinds of uh, international laws address that kind of uh, complete disrespect for law? Yes, well, in fact, you're right that um, one side is is not respecting law or the law that we are recognizing. They claim to recognize some kind of dictates and decrees and and and, and norms that uh, go back to the seventh century. But that's another matter. But you're very much uh, correct to say that. Well, this is a very much uh, you know one-sided in terms of respect for the law. But uh, my point would be that the Geneva Conventions are also important. Uh, to restrain our own uh, soldiers and commanders to make sure that uh, in in the war that they carry out and the actions that they carry out that they do follow the rules and so it's not only for to ensure that that, that you know terrorists are not tortured but it's also to to maintain the legitimate way uh, in which uh, hostilities are conducted in the field and uh, as i say that that could substantially help, in my opinion, to make sure that in the global struggle that the legitimacy factor is on the side of uh, law and the rule of law and, and humanitarian law and, and human rights. So it, it, that may sound very idealistic, but in fact it's not. It's, it's about not going down to the level of the terrorist, because once you go in that direction, uh, in a way, you've already lost the war because then it's just uh, brutality against brutality, and we don't want to go there. We've seen, you know, what that looks like, and I don't need to mention some of the major violations that have been committed by by the uh, warring parties that normally do follow the Geneva Conventions. But those kinds of things are, are brandished; those kind of examples as, oh, look, you see, look how cruel. 
And so not only um, does it help uh, to get recruits, but they say, you know, we, we in our own way are legitimate because we're just the same as who these people are, who are, uh, you know, attacking us in uh, Syria and Iraq, etc. So in a way, it levels the playing ground in a way we don't want to see. And it, it has to be, it's a longer, it's going to be a longer fight. It's going to be about respect and human rights and democracy and rule of law that people are persuaded away from radicalization. And you can't really do that if you uh, throw off the uh, the gloves and uh, and get uh, down and dirty right away. We've got to win it. We've got to win the struggle, but we have to do it in a way that, that doesn't feed the struggle uh, on both sides. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up with your uh, final thoughts and your uh, contact information. So, Dr. Sangha, if you could just summarize and then uh, give our listeners your contact information should they want to reach out and contact you. Well, thanks, uh, first of all, for, for inviting me on this on the show. It's, uh, terrorism is, is really something that is uh, very clear and present danger, and it's something that's going to take uh, a lot of time and efforts and resources and cooperation to to fight. And so, you know, it's always uh, important to to view this whole issue and uh, the measures against it through the legal lens and not to cast uh, law to to the winds and and to realize that uh, we have to take a a very responsible and, uh, and, and uh, you know, approach to, to, to the issue. I thank you very much. I invite people to visit my website, which is www.lyalsunga.com. That's L-Y-A-L-S-U-N-G-A dot com. And there you'll find, you know, a lot of information on, on what, what I do and my publications and what I've done over the last uh, 25 years or so in, in human rights, humanitarian law, international criminal law for people that are interested and so thank you again. It's been a real pleasure to, to talk to you and your and your listeners. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Tanzania today. We really appreciate it. We've been talking with Dr. Lyle Sunga, head of the Rule of Law Program at the Hague Institute for Global Justice in the Netherlands and a visiting professor at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute for Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. Thank you so much for the time to be with us today. Thanks again. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.